Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm pleased to feature Angela Main, Chief Compliance Officer of Zimmer Biomet. Angela, welcome. Please tell us about your background. Okay, so it's been quite a journey. Um, I thought I'd just focus on probably the three main um, sort of jobs or industries that I've been in that I actually think looking back have led me to where I am today. So I kicked off um, back in the 90s with my first major legal job being as a uh, corporate commercial lawyer for Texas Instruments. And uh, that was based in France, Italy and Singapore over a sort of eight to 10 year period. And started very much, as I said, mergers, acquisitions, uh, contracts, uh, the sort of the, the bit of employment law, bit of leasing. So your, your normal um, general uh, corporate compliance work. Then some of the moves have been from a you know, personal background. We've been balancing my career with my husband's career. And at that time, late 90s, there was a bit of a downturn in Asia, where I currently was. And we ended up back in London. And the last few years at Texas Instruments, even though it had been corporate commercial, I'd ended up doing a lot of technology work. So I had been doing uh, technology transfers, um, looking at some IP work, and just it was 1998. And as I got back to London, the buzz was all around uh, internet banking, the year 2000, um, uh, aggregate accounts, cookies, data privacy. And they were going, oh, great, you're a technology lawyer. And I was like, well, <laughs> if you want me to be. Um, and so, <laughs> I, so I moved into a group, what turned out to be a great job with uh, Lloyd's TSB. And I was head of their IT and um operations legal team. That's sort of how it was fairly narrowly drawn initially. And again, I had another eight to 10 years with uh, in this role. And very quickly, the bank was pivoting to outsource all the non-core banking functions. So I ended up leading these massive outsourcing deals, which, which I loved um, and got a lot of pleasure out of. And uh, during the course of these, obviously, you were looking at many, many different divisions in uh, the bank. And I ended up doing quite a lot of um, uh, governance and strategy work as well as part of that. And that sort of when again, it was time to move and we left London and we moved um, actually to the US briefly, then back to Asia where I ended up moving um, into uh, the healthcare sector. So slightly different industry. And the job I went into was uh, sold to me is 80% um, legal and 20% compliance. And they were announcing, oh, great, that's a neat fit with the corporate governance work, bit of compliance work in the financial services sector, transferable skills. So I ended up quite happily taking that on, thinking that's a nice mix very quickly. So we're talking um, you're about 2010 now. Um, uh, and in the healthcare sector, there were a lot of settlements, a lot of DOJ, SEC interest. And my job very quickly became 80% compliance and 20% legal, you know, starting with a subpoena that, uh, I, that landed on my desk within six months of me joining the company. So it was a sort of a woe-to-go um, situation, and uh, I loved it. it uh, and I haven't looked back, and um, it's, it, it almost felt like everything else had been leading up 
to this moment. And I'm very love being in the healthcare sector, very rewarding on a personal basis. You know, what we do every day really, really does make a difference. And also the work that I can contribute and my team contributes in the anti-corruption space is incredible. Um, it's very satisfying work. That's the potted version. <laughs> Well, um, and Angela, you're a New Zealander as well, although um, it's a little more difficult to pinpoint you back to, to New Zealand these days. You're a true international citizen, and I think I've met my match in you um, with all of your wonderful international experience. So will you tell us a little bit about what you see some of the benefits of, of being an expat are, and especially in the compliance sure. world? So I'm half New Zealander, as, as you mentioned, and, and half British. So I've sort of got uh, a couple of different perspectives there. But I have also spent 15 years working in Asia, um, three years in D.C., uh, and then and in, even in between those times, traveling extensively, you know, Lon uh, and working in London, France, Italy. So it's uh, been a broad um, sort of approach over the last 30 years. I would actually take issue with the word expat. I think um, to me, that's somebody who's sent over there with a big healthy package and housing and they can continue to live there expat life in an environment where they don't really integrate. And so my travel and postings were very much not on that basis. So, you know, I'd go there and I'd be going there on a local footing and um, felt very, very integrated with uh, you know, the communities that I went to, loved it. And I think I'll continue to do that. I always had this five-year plan of returning to New Zealand, which obviously 35 years later has not happened and po quite possibly never will. Love being out of my comfort zone, love um, having the opportunity to interact with different cultures, learn different languages, meet different people. And I think that really makes you an adaptable, curious, um, open-minded person. And that helps you in your career as well, because you can be put down in any situation and you don't necessarily have that framework if you've stayed in the same place, the same industry, same workforce. Uh, you, you have to adapt. You have to pivot. Uh, and I think that's been hugely beneficial to me personally, but but also in the way of taking up um, issues that uh, can take come out of left field at work. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you raise. Um, I um, left New Zealand I think much later than you did. Um, and by the time I left, the expat package was really not a thing anymore. And so what we think of as being essentially foreign workers is a different world to what it once was. And a lot of the time there was some kind of um, either danger money involved or, you know, something to compensate you for it being a less than desirable area. And as you've probably noticed, uh, at least I found Singapore is hugely desirable. Um, it is probably my favorite place that I've lived in so far. And I really hope I get to go back for around three at some point. So the expat stereotype of the past is, is um, one that I, I think is quite well behind us. And like you, I think there is immense value in properly assimilating yourself into the, the neighborhood and the network around you. And um, from a compliance officer perspective, I think it's um, a risk area as well. So, for example, when we think about um, Chinese New Year and then um, the, the topic of funerals in Asia, a lot of the time it is customary, even if you're attending as a, a business associate, to provide a white envelope with cash or cash in some other way. And if you are 
a person that does not know that as a, a practice, as a compliance officer, then you won't mention it in trainings. And I have found a lot of the time that when it is a, a, a cultural topic, something that's deeply embedded in the customs of a country, uh, there can be an inclination to assume that the compliance of, uh, compliance policies do not apply to those particular practices. And therefore, it's really important to overtly mention these things. And if you have not tried to learn about the practices around you, if you've not tried to make local friends and talk to um, the, the the business colleagues that uh, know the culture better than you do, that can actually be a risk area. Agreed. And I think that those conversations have to happen before the policies are even written so that mm -hmm. you're at consultation, you're getting that input and you're getting that ability to explain the rationale. I think people are much likely to, more likely to be complying with the policy if they felt they've had input and if they understand the rationale behind it. So, um, using that opportunity and I think um, leveraging the people around you as well. You're, you're just one person out of many there. And then the ability to work in all these different countries, I think what we give back to the companies are we, we are helping them become truly global in their approach and we're helping mm -hmm. do interpretation, as you say, between local customs and how they may be appearing to be you know, dreadful misconduct um, we'll see, when seen through the lens of somebody in the US or the UK mm -hmm. and can help bring that context to it to say these are not bad people. This mm -hmm. is just, um, they have a different perspective and we need to help them bridge that gap. Mm, absolutely. I love that point that you make about being more inclusive because naturally if people own a, a new initiative, they're far more likely to buy in. Um, and one of the interesting things that I've seen um, come out has been Novartis has just recently revamped their code of conduct. And one of the points that they mentioned that I saw on social media was that it was written by colleagues, not just compliance colleagues, but um, other people in the business had a say in the drafting of the code of conduct. And I think that was um, quite, quite trailblazing. Previously on the show, we spoke with Olga Pontes, who was managing multiple monitorships at Odebrecht. You recently led the Zimmer Biomet team to a successful certification of your monitorship. Huge congratulations to you for that. You. Will, you, will you share some of the insights of the overall experience and what was the biggest learning point for you in the monitorship process? Happy to. Uh, certification was as recent as June this year, so mm -hmm. we're still in the... Uh, celebratory mode to a certain extent, saying, is it really behind us? Um, what, what was interesting to me is no one wants to find themselves in that situation. It's a, it's a drain on resource. It's a drain on morale. Um, it diverts you know, where, where the company can be really putting its focus. But when you do find yourself there, you, you do have to make them you know, think, okay, well, how can I make this a positive experience? And I think you've got to really... Um, put inside any uh, grievances that you may feel for, for having been picked on or whatever it is, and just think, how can I turn this around? How, we're spending a lot of money here, so let's make it productive for the company and let's keep an open mind because any compliance program, no matter how good we think ours is, there's always room for an improvement uh, to it. So it is a matter of staying curious, building a strong relationship with the monitor so that you are making sure that they have a good understanding of the company so that any recommendations or improvements that they're suggesting or working with you on actually are going to make sense and that they are going to work. And it's 
picking your moments to push back, um, but again, always doing it um, in a constructive manner and, and with rationalization as to why that won't work, because both the monitor and the company want solutions that are not going to unravel the, the moment the monitor is left. So I think you know the biggest learning curve was that adjustment period, getting to know your monitor who's going to be there for um, three years typically, and then making it a, a constructive process. And I think you asked also, we talked earlier about, you know, what, what were some of the biggest lessons coming out of that? And to, to me, there are a couple. One was the importance of leveraging and harnessing the leadership team. You know, so you're just a compliance officer and you might have you know, 80, 90, 100 people, but you've got organizations of 20, 30, 40,000. And the only way you're going to be effective is if you spend that time up front um, winning the hearts and minds of the leadership team so that you know, they get it, they're behind it, and then they're going to lead their people in a way you never could as effectively. So it's making sure that they've understood what you're doing, why you're doing it, see the benefit of it, and then making sure they're authentic in the way they uh, teach their people the value and the importance of compliance and the messaging that um, I saw my leadership team uh, delivering over, increasing over that three-year period was phenomenal. You know, we were initially having to structure them, remind them of the topics that are important, and now I, I, I can hardly stop them. Every every time I have an interaction with them or on a, I want to tell them, I hear them talking about compliance, I hear them saying, yes, business is important, but no shortcuts, and it's just become natural. Um, it, it, it was structured to start with, but it's just very gratifying when you see um, you know, that becomes muscle memory and that you see it becomes embedded uh, in the program and it's going to be that much more powerful coming from the business themselves than it is as messaging out from a compliance team. So uh, key learning, you know, get that tone at the top, um, get, get these comp compliance ambassadors at every level and every corner of the company and then you're just going to have a much, um, a much bigger reach in terms of... of um, uh, the impact that you can have. And then even though you know, we all want to move to a, a more principle-based um, type compliance program and have less rules, I do have a trust but verify approach. So I think you get out there, you get you know, this good business relationship um, and, and advisory capacity, but then um, just always make sure you've got a robust back backroom engine of monitoring, auditing, compliance, and that they're just going in periodically, not to not in a gotcha sort of fashion, but just to verify that people did understand the policies, the training, the communications, and they put them into to practice as they were meant to be, and so that you can actually detect and sort of remediate um, before it becomes a big issue or before the external. Oh, um, regulators find it, and it just gives you that opportunity to to get that to go to sleep at night and say, okay, you know, I, I know they heard me. I see that they're doing it well, or even picking up where they're not, where they've had a misunderstanding, or uh, something was rolled out that they don't even technically have the capability of complying with. So they find a workaround, and they don't think to come back to you and say, hey. It's a good idea, but it doesn't work. So, hey, this is what I'm doing instead, which might be a good idea, but it mightn't really um, you know, hit all the buttons it needs to. So it's that trust and verify. And, and doing that in collaboration with the team so they don't feel that you're spying on them, that you're coming in to catch them, but it's that, hey, we can all improve. So um, that, again, a big, big takeaway. And 
yes, we all know the power of the investigations, but it was just like make sure um, that your risk assessment is making sure you're, you're using your um, your resources and putting your focus on the right things and it's not just a scattergun approach. Wonderful. And it, um, it's probably not surprising to you to hear that as someone who's currently uh, in the midst of a monitorship, I get really excited about hearing at the light, hearing about the light at the end of the tunnel. So I'd love to hear from you, uh, Angela, what's next? What becomes the strategy and priority for a compliance department after completing a monitorship? Well, uh, I, I think one of the things I'm proud of is that we left on very good terms with our monitor and I'm still in touch with her. Um, so, and it was very important for both of us in the last six months when we could see the light was there at the end of the tunnel, we were going to be certified, but it was important in that last six months not to rest on your laurels and say, hey, we're over the finish line. But we spent a lot of that time thinking, what happens next? And we crafted a sustainability plan that's technically called the Compliance Strategy and Sustainability Plan. So it's looking forward and it's a three-year document, but we'll be refreshing that every year. It never finishes. Um, but it's you've got a high level. It's based on the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. It's got a sort of philosophical statement. You know, this is what, we, what success looks like for us in the space. But it's also then backed up by other documentation that sits behind it. Uh, that means what are the activities that we need to do in order to, to maintain that pillar? And what are the um, metrics that we're going to use to know whether we are there or not? And uh, that's been a really important um, process. Putting it together uh, gave us a sense of comfort that we, we had a, a, a good grasp of the issues and things we needed to look at. We involved the leadership team in this. We consulted broadly. The board blessed it. Um, they had feedback on it. They didn't bless it uh, without uh, saying, what about this, what about that? So great interaction there. And we're using that as one of our documents with these scorecards coming out for all of the key areas and reporting out regularly to the audit committee and the board on them. So we're continuing to get that high-level focus and attention that you need uh, to ensure that, that uh, you know, all that hard work you've put in and that you're putting in currently doesn't unravel uh, the moment she's gone. So very much the focus at the moment is making sure that sustainability plan is implemented, um, that we're learning the lessons along the way from that, and um, that it we're built into that, obviously, the continuous improvement, the market changes, the risk changes. We have to be ready to pivot so we can't say we've got a fantastic program. It's not static. You, you know, misconduct's not static. We have to, you know, it, it changes, it evolves, and we have to make sure that we change and evolve along with it to, to stay ahead of it or at least be aware of it and detecting it as soon as it crops up. And I think the third part of, of um, what's ahead for us, you know, sustainability plan, the continuous improvement. And then is very much the recognition and um, rewarding is, is um, an important sort of end game as well to keep the focus on it, to keep people engaged in it. So it's very much we've set up a number of compliance awards that people continue to want to strive for. We've done them in regions. We've done them in different business units. Uh, we've done them within the compliance team. And it's making people feel proud of um, the, you know, the, the small, medium and the big achievements that they have. And we're recognising that, um, uh, you know, throughout the company so that it's up there as something that, uh, 
that is talked about frequently. And then there's external recognition as well. So we have just put in our submission uh, to become one of the most re reputable um, ethics companies in the world through Ethisphere. And just the very process of putting that 30-page in your application together, in which you can't just say what you're doing, you actually have to have documentation that they can evaluate to, to, to see if you are up there. And we are um, hoping to be hearing back in you know, March, April time that not only do we think we're doing well, the monitor certified us, she thinks we're doing well, but we're hitting all of the milestones that an independent body would expect us to be hitting with you know, sufficient justification uh, of that. So it's always looking for opportunities to um, benchmark, improve, recognize, reward, um, keep it forefront in people's mind. I love that. I think it could be tempting for some companies to fall into complacency after completing a monitorship um, or a, a CIA, for example. So the fact that you're continuing to maintain the momentum and prioritizing compliance still, I think, is a, a great role model because you don't want to be in a position where 10 years down the track, you think, oh, you know, we're so good. We were certified. And yet we know that compliance programs and best practices evolve and change uh, over the years. So remaining um, in lockstep with, with the evolution of compliance, I think, is going to be something for us all to watch out for after we've finished uh, our monitorships. And uh, I think you're doing yeah. a fantastic job of that. And I do know from another one of our great women in compliance, the process of preparing for consideration for one of the world's most ethical companies is incredibly arduous. And you really do have to put in a lot of effort to, to prove your case. So I know that you'll have put in a lot of hard work for that. We have, for sure. <laughs> so one of the things I worry about, whether in a monitorship or not, is the idea of compliance fatigue. And you and I spoke about this uh, a while ago, and you mentioned that um, in terms of the status quo, that's not a, a problem that you're facing, which is fantastic. However, I do want to pick your brain um, about that as a, um, a risk area for a compliance program. If you were experiencing compliance fatigue, so colleagues have had enough of hearing about compliance, they feel like it's been drummed into them too much and we're over-educating and so on. How would you approach that problem? Well, I think of compliance fatigue in a couple of ways, not just our audience, but also within our own teams. And, and we did talk about when you're going under and through a monitorship, you're doing two jobs. Uh, you don't get the benefit of, of um, well, some some companies do just say, okay, we're going to bring in a whole team to do it and everyone just goes about their daily business. But that was not the approach that we adopted. I wanted the people who were part of the compliance team to be the front of the company doing that, plus our, our, you know, our counterparts and colleagues in finance, IT, HR, who all have something to do with the structure and the activities in the compliance program. So I wanted to be putting them in front of the monitor. So it, it is amazing over that three-year period, and there was, as you know, a four-year monitorship before that in, in Biomet, prior to the acquisition um, of Biomet by Zimmer. And um, we've had an amazingly low attrition rate. I can probably count on one hand the number of people um, and key positions that left during that time. And I think uh, compliance people are weirdly energized 
by <laughs> the challenge of somebody saying their compliance program is not good enough. So they will, it was, a, a, my team did an amazing job at stepping up, keeping the lights on and, and keeping everything going and also fronting up for interviews with the monitor, providing information to requests, you know, the transaction testing that her forensic accountants did, you know, amazing amount of work pulling the documentation for that. Um, and the presentation. So one of the uh, ways we handled the monitorship when, when we felt that maybe what she was thinking, uh, you, she didn't have the right context and she was going off down the wrong track. So my team were hugely involved, as were, as I say, finance, IT, HR, in pulling together presentations to say, hey, Kate, before you, know, you come to a conclusion about that, we'd love to let, you know, do a presentation, a two-hour presentation on the, the, the journey in trade compliance over the last two years and the things that we've done and the things we're planning to do, because what you're looking at is a little narrow, it's just a slice of, of the bigger picture. And, and she was fantastic in you know, putting aside the time to hear us out. And uh, so that's a lot of work, as you know, pulling, pulling anything together on top of what you do. And they were visiting you know, dozens of countries, uh, holding thousands of interviews or hundreds of interviews and um, thousands of documents being pulled. So um, the fatigue element was definitely there, but I think people were so energised by it, and I think that's why they are in the job that they're in, because uh, you just can never rest on your laurels. In terms of the fatigue you mentioned for our audience, you know, here, here we go, another compliance topic. Well, a couple of things there. I think we've, um, we had the basics. We got the basics in place. We had a lot of them in place before the monitorship, refined those in the early days of that. And then we were looking for ways, as I say, uh, to be innovative, to make sure that the compliance, people were hearing about it from different people, so hearing it about from about it from the um, commercial leaders, it was like, wow, okay, it's not another compliance officer droning on. It's it's my boss. It's you know, and he cares about sales targets, but here he is telling me how much he cares about um, doing it properly and uh, not finding us in the newspaper in a in a um, adverse or negative way, and then relating it back to our company as every company does. It has various mission strategy statements, and we have three pillars. One is trusted partner, which obviously we fall in, as does quality, supply chain, et cetera. But our other two pillars are best and preferred place to work and top quartile performer. So it was making sure that people were seeing compliance in context, not just of pure compliance, but of you know, ethics, is a much bigger topic and much, something people can really relate to. And if you think about best and preferred place to work, you know, we were positioning it that who wants to come and work for a company where they don't care about, you know, how you get the job done and that you're in the newspaper you know, for poor reasons and that investors are you know, you know, hearing negative stories about you. So it was like, oh, okay, I didn't think of it that way. And then also coming from top quartile performer, normally they think we're a drain on, on the income of a company. But again, positioning it that investors, shareholders, other stakeholders, they care how you show up in the marketplace. And you know, that trusted, being a trusted partner to all of these stakeholders was quite powerful and presenting it that way. And also showing the money you won't be spending with a monitor um, if you get it right in the first place. So trying to combat that fatigue by embedding it into the, the culture of the company, seeing it from different angles, and then also being innovative on how we delivered the training, not just um, saying here are the policies and we're going to walk through them, but making them scenario-based, making them interactive, making sure that we got feedback for we pulled those um, uh, trainings together and saying, what do you want to hear about? How do you want to hear about it? Holding quizzes, holding games, 
pre-COVID, obviously, a lot of face-to-face training, and we've had to you know, be really tested and pushed in the current environment to make those available through on 24 and WebExes and make them as engaging as before. And then using metrics to go in and test the effectiveness of that by looking, okay, we did these trainings. Is there any correlation between that and the number of allegations coming into the hotline? Or is there any um, correlation between the training and are, are people actually coming forward and saying, hey, I'm a bit concerned about this or that, or I didn't think of it that way. And so making sure um, that you follow up to see if you are being effective, that if that fatigue is there, that you're aware of it and it's not just people yawning but not raising it. So we carry out um, surveys following trainings, but we also carried out a compliance survey across the company. And then it gave us the, uh, you know, we did, Ethosphere carried that out for us. Very proud that we scored highly in most areas. We had a couple of areas where we were 10% below benchmark and we thought, whoa, this is where we need to focus. And so I think you, you avoid that fatigue by knowing where your spots are that you have to focus on and not just going out and saying all things are equal and we're going to put everyone through the same training year in, year out, but actually saying we're talking about this because and getting them involved in that, using scenarios, using investigation findings to bring it to life and, and get them sort of invested in the outcome. And um, we've seen your great improvement there and feedback on that. And again, it's exhausting because you always want to be new and different uh, and get that messaging across, but uh, incredibly important. I feel like I just uh, got on a bit of a hobby horse there. but uh, no, I love it. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there are some, some really great points you made and I want to touch on a couple of those. So at, at the end, you were really talking about proportionality, right, and using the data available to you to make sure that you are appropriately applying your resource and your efforts. So we've always known that to be what the um, the regulators like to see in compliance programs, but sometimes it takes that extra step of asking beyond what you yourself think as a compliance officer is important to strategize on, is what is my audience? What, what are my stakeholders? What do they have to say about this? And then really mm-hmm. listening to them and, and applying that information. Yep. The other thing that you mentioned that I'm really glad that you did um, was just the sheer effort that goes into it from a a compliance officer perspective of getting through a monitorship. The initial feeling I think for many is this is super exciting. I'm going to have some monitorship experience to put on my CV or resume. Um, This will be a really fascinating approach. And then we've got basically our own compliance mentor with this monitor being brought in. I can learn so much from them. Uh, And all of those things are true. uh, And all of those things motivate me. Um, But what has been really hard have been, even if you bring in new, more staff to help, the existing staff inevitably have to get caught up in in some kind of ramping up of responsibilities in in some way. Either it's implementing um, some kind of remediation measures or the monitor interviews, as you've mentioned. Um, And and that part is hard. It's exhausting. So uh, I, I... would be interested to hear from you. I guess there was that intrinsic motivation that the compliance officers had. Is there anything that you wanted to do as the chief compliance officer to really keep the the motivation up because people were working so hard and most likely longer hours? 
Yeah, so we did actually, we um, uh, uh, we tried to keep um, a core team of about half a dozen people as sort of the coordinators of that. And so we did, where we saw the workload was becoming a little untenable, we did take um, some of their back work and we farmed that out to either other people within the team or we even brought in external consultants to happen, help with that. Because I actually felt it was better to be putting our people in front of the monitor rather than bringing in extra forces to do it who didn't really know us as well. So I tried to keep an eye on that, make sure we were freeing them up so that they didn't uh, burn out. And obviously um, the, it was good opportunities for them. We talked to them about their you know, career path and what would be at the end of this. Uh, we had to do some you know, retention bonuses for that as well. Um, you know, again, for some of the key people who were clearly working 150, 200% sometimes. So, it, it, But it's, it was interesting to see that it wasn't just about the money. It was the recognition they wanted. It was the experience they wanted. Um, and the, the, But you know, always you know, making sure they're compensated for that um, does help. And, and I think... Um, Another thing that's important within the compliance team and monitorships is that rotation. So we made sure that people weren't, uh, didn't feel that they, they were just repeating the same things over and over again. So we made sure that they got exposure to, to different aspects of the compliance program. And there's quite a bit of movement uh, between our, you know, our legal finance and um, compliance team. So making sure uh, people had other opportunities to help keep them focused and engaged and seeing that there was more to this than just uh, you know, delivering on a, a fairly rigorous timetable. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Angela. My final question for you, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and tell us what do you think the future holds for compliance? Hmm. Um, so we're not going to talk about politics, so we we, we won't bring in the mm-hmm. transition from Trump <laughs> because there will be changes. Yeah, I think there, yeah. there, there always yeah. are with a with new leader mm-hmm. in the US. And of course, compliance is much bigger than the FCPA or the American mm-hmm. attitude toward it. But I, I, a lot of the recent settlements are still coming out of the US. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I've seen a diminishing amount of monitorships. A lot of companies who had similar misconduct to ours are now you know, coming to settlements. They've got some self, you know, self-reporting obligations for some years. But um, I think there are going to be less monitorships going forward, whether, as I say, with a change of administration, that's going to check, that's going to reverse. I don't know. I, but I think that's quite a constructive. I'm, I'm pleased to see that. I think it's a more constructive approach because having a monitor as useful as it can be for a company who is really um, in the nascent stage of a compliance program and they actually need that expertise. If, if, you're, if you really do have a, you know, a fairly good program, you do just need some fine tuning and uh, having a monitoring really does, is a drain on resources. So um, there are other ways to get to the same point, I think, that are um, less antagonistic for a company, obviously less costly, as long as the message has got through clearly to to your leadership that something has to be done here and the company does need to invest in it. But getting that autonomy to do it in in a more flexible fashion, I hope will continue. What else is ahead for us? Again, I think companies and, and you know, the third parties that we deal with are, are getting more sophisticated in knowing what's expected of them. So I have this deep-seated desire to be moving um, companies from a, you know, a, 
a fairly hefty sort of rule book of what's expected of them, what they have to do in order to stay out of trouble to, to a principle base. And then I say this more ethical approach and, and looking at what that means for the company as a whole and motivating people to do it for the right reasons rather than they're going to get into trouble if they don't, um, which is always you know, your last resort. So I do see companies getting more sophisticated uh, value being put on a, a principle-based approach with obviously a structure behind that to make sure that it's clear to people what they what that means in, in reality. Um, and one of the things that will help that, help us move to that, is increasing focus on data analytics. I think we're going to be beefing up our teams in that area. We already have, you know, we, we had an interesting journey, an interesting part of the uh, monitorship was the focus in on we had at the start 59 ERP systems. So having meaning access to meaningful data, accurate data, integrity of data was really hard work for the monitoring and audit teams. We built a data warehouse so that we had all the high-risk transactions and uh, now we're adding them, the pricing and discounts and sales data into there. So we've got one place to go while we're on that journey of reducing the ERPs. We're down from 59 to about 30, uh, and the plan is to get down to five or seven. But in the meantime, we, we got on top of that by having the central location, ironing out some of the glitches about data coming in, making sure that it um, the integrity was maintained and that it was full full and accurate data. So way more to come on that front. We can get rid of a lot of the groundwork and do automate a lot more of our sort of monitoring processes there. We can't rely on it completely. You know, I think anyone looking at artificial intelligence at the moment knows that it's got some shortcomings, but that's the direction I think all companies need to be heading in. And then you add the human intelligence uh, component to what um, you know, the data analytics are telling you so that you're weeding out the false positives and really... Um, making sure you make that data work for you. We've got that data sitting within our company and, and the DOJ and SEC don't take kindly to it if you're not finding ways to get at that data and use it to help your own program sort of detect uh, what's working and what's not. And there's, there's nothing more damning uh, than them coming in and saying, hey, look, it was sitting here and you ignored it. So we have to find ways to get at that and use it to our advantage. And what's What's been really gratifying to me is when I've been selling this idea to, to our company, the finance team is going, oh, my God, we, we can use that data warehouse for our own purposes. You know, it's going to help us with this. So showing that what we're doing is not just a drain, a compliance drain, and just, just for us to be able to do our job, but that data is really useful for the business to be, you know, for their strategic decisions and, and um, their decisions around where their risk areas are and what they want to focus on. So making sure that whatever you do has as wider application as possible within the company so you get that um, take up of it and, and that endorsement um, of what you're doing. Super. That sounds really interesting and I'm, I'm definitely going to follow um, what you're doing in that space, Angela. Just one quick follow-up question on that. How are you approaching your data analytics specialists. So did you use existing staff? Did you hire people to, um, new that are already experts in this area? How are you resourcing your data analytics efforts? So very interesting. It's a mixture. We, do, we did have some people who already had some skill sets and were being underused. So we've grabbed them. Um, what is really important for us is that we keep our eye on what is the end product we want? Because if you throw data analytics people in it to set the strategy, they just get carried away with data analytics for the sake of data analytics. So you've got to make sure that you're, you're looking at the, what the prize is and making sure they understand that as well. 
We did recruit externally because we wanted to up our game. So we got people from the big four who joined us and they had a breadth of experience through other industries as well. And they brought some ideas that we were like, oh, great. Hadn't thought of that. Good idea. And then the third thing that we're in the process of doing is we were obviously focusing on that for our benefit. And as I say, finance was going, oh, that's really great. But we have um, data analytics for the business. So we looked, well, let's join forces so you know, working with other teams and, and pockets of data analytics within the company will give us a lot more bandwidth. So we're pulling that in and the company itself is looking at opportunities for centers of excellence. So we're going to, we can't lose um, you, you know, the focus that we want on data analytics for the compliance program, but I, I see nothing but upside from combining all of those efforts within a company so that you're getting much greater bandwidth. And as long as you've made it clear that, you know, what, what you need coming out of this, you're, you're giving up a bit of control, but um, as long as you're feeding in the strategy and you've got, uh, you're, you're, you stay invested in what they're doing and it's clear that this team isn't delivering just for one business owner, but it's delivering for these other um, goals. Uh, I, I think companies have a lot more at their disposal than they realize. And it's just a lot sometimes fine tuning rather than I'm going to go and hire 12 data people because I've got to head this direction. You've got a lot of it on your doorstep. You just need to investigate that, find out what you can use and then supplement that with external help just so that you stay ahead of the game because it's a, it's a really, really, really fast moving space. That's some great advice there. Thank you, Angela. Uh, I think you are a wonderful success story of uh, someone leading their uh, company and team through a monitorship. So I'm so feeling so privileged to have you here and, and so grateful for your time and expertise that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much. That's really kind. And I feel that's completely um, uh, over the top. <laughs> <laughs> that I one of the things I can say that I feel coming out of the monitorship is humbled um, by you know the sheer amount of work that was put into this by by people who were working around the clock to get there and I, I could not have done it without that enthusiasm that energy and the interaction that we had with the monitor you know I'm also grateful to the monitor team for staying reasonable you know and, and listening to us and, and partnering with us and I just feel, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize I have to learn. So uh, it, kind of you to say that, but uh, it's, uh, it's still a long road ahead. Well, I love compliance officer humility as well. So wonderful to see that in you. Thank you again, Angela. Thank you for having me. Great opportunity. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.